I would encourage everyone watching just to continue to pray for each of our governors in the 50 states and in the territories and all the other local and national leaders who are trying to deal with this pandemic. Pray for the safety and health of everyone around us and that this virus will peak and drop as quickly as possible. In fact, let's take a moment and pray for that right now. Heavenly Father, we know that you are in control. We're to fix our eyes on that which is not seen rather than that which is seen. Lord, we know that down through the courts of human history there have been many tragedies. We know we live in a world that has fallen, in a fallen state, and as such we have germs, bacteria, viruses, illnesses. This in no way reflects poorly upon you, Lord. It's all a result of the fall of man, the fallen state that our world is in, which will soon be restored when our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ returns. In the meantime, we pray that you would pour out your healing oil upon our nation, upon the population, both young and old and in between. We pray for a quick dissipation of this virus, that people would be able to get back to living their normal lives, going to school, going to work, enjoying all the blessings and benefits of this wonderful land that we live in, the parks, the rivers, the lakes, the streams, all the other great things that we have, which you have blessed us with. We pray that all of that may return to us sooner rather than later, Lord. But again, we yield to your sovereignty for your perfect will to be done. We thank you, God, that we can put our hope and our trust in you, that you are faithful and you will sustain us through this crisis. We ask now, Lord, your blessing upon the study of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to begin a study today in the book of Revelation. How timely, would you say? We have many signs all around us that the return of Christ is approaching rapidly. As you probably know, this book of Revelation was written by John the Apostle. Of course, it was given to him, this revelation, this unveiling. In fact, that's the title of the message, The Unveiling Begins. And it was Jesus himself who transmitted this message, this rather lengthy and in-depth message, Jesus transmitted it to John, but he's the one who wrote it down for us, passed it down to us. There's strong evidence that it was written in the 90s. That would be the 90s of the first century, so 2,000 years ago. And it was written in a period when Christians were really under severe persecution by Rome. Rome was still the prevailing power in the known world at that time. We believe that uh, the writing of this book of Revelation took place during a very harsh reign of a very warped individual named Domitian who ruled from 81 A.D. to 96 A.D., so about a 15-year reign of terror. And this date for the book of Revelation in the mid-90s was given to us by the church father Irenaeus. 
and other early Christian writers also, and it matches up with the picture that we see in the first several chapters especially of the apathy, complacency, and apostasy of the churches in chapters 2 and 3. And so this dating is widely accepted by modern scholars that this book was written right at the end of the first century. And I'm going to read, we're only going to cover five verses today as we begin with our introduction to the book of Revelation, verses 1 through 5. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant, John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. So we're told right at the very beginning, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Greek word is apocalypsis. And it literally means, interestingly enough, nakedness. The nakedness of Jesus Christ. The uncovering of Jesus Christ. A revealing or disclosing of that which was previously not known. And as we get through this chapter, we will see that that revealing, that unveiling has to do with a very strong and clear image of the risen and exalted Jesus Christ who is now in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, eyes like flames of fire, feet like burnished brass. A very dynamic picture that we will see here later on in this chapter, the revealing. The first time Christ came, he came as the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. That Jesus is revealed in the Gospels, but now in Revelation, the glorified, risen Son of God is revealed to us. And He is the focal point of the entire book. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him. So God the Father gave this revelation to Jesus. And then Jesus imparted it to the Apostle John. Luke 10, 22. All things have been delivered to me by my Father, says Jesus. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father. And who the Father is except the Son and the one to whom the Son will reveal him. So there's an intimate knowledge and understanding between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the triune God, Jesus said no one knows him except the Father, and only the Father knows Jesus, and those to whom Jesus chooses to reveal him. So I would encourage you this morning, if you do not know the Lord, if you don't know God, pray and ask Jesus to make himself known to you, to make the Father known to you, to reveal to you who he truly is. 
God gave him to show his servants. John is identified here too in the first verse as the servant of Jesus Christ. But then every believer, we are all his servants. So God gave this revelation to Jesus who gave it to John who gave it to us, the servants of God. This unveiling is for believers. And God has given Jesus something very special to show his brothers and sisters. Remember that old show, All in the Family? Well, this is all in the family. And then what, what is he going to show us? Things which must shortly take place. Literally, it means with speed. Some would look at this verse and say, well, this is bogus. It didn't shortly take place. It's 2,000 years later. These things still haven't happened. But that's not what it means. It literally means with speed. This word does not indicate that events described in this book will necessarily occur soon. But when they do begin to happen, they will come to pass swiftly. The same Greek word here is translated speedily. The same word that's used here as shortly is translated speedily in Luke 18.8. Luke 18.7 and 8. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? So God is promising to avenge his own who have been persecuted, abused, and that will certainly take place in the tribulation. But then, he says, but when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? How many true believers will be left upon this earth at the return of Christ? There are many predicting great worldwide revivals, people coming to God, coming to Christ, I have to be honest, if there would be ever a time when that would occur, you would think it would be happening in the middle of this pandemic, but I've seen little or no evidence of that happening. We saw a momentary upsurge after 9-1-1, the attack on the Twin Towers in New York City. It lasted a couple of weeks, maybe. The Bible is very clear that the end times will not be characterized by a great worldwide spiritual revival but by a worldwide falling away, an apostasy. So when it says, will he really find faith on the earth, this does not argue for improved spiritual conditions in the world before Christ's return. And something we've seen more and more, I've commented on this recently, that at one time, oh, whether it be books, articles, music, Movies, television programs, not too awfully long ago, Christians tended to be portrayed in a positive light. God portrayed in a positive light. Ministers of the gospel portrayed in a positive light. That's no longer the case. In almost every instance, you will see pastors, Christians, the Christian faith denigrated, downgraded, Another strong indicator that we are indeed in the last days, in the time of the great apostasy, which the Bible predicts. 
Mark 13, 8. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places or diverse places, meaning unusual places where they don't usually occur. We're starting to see that happen all over the U.S. Oklahoma, Idaho, very unusual and strange places where earthquakes are beginning to occur and more and more frequently as well. There will be famines and troubles. Now, I wouldn't say that the U.S. is in a famine as of yet, but we've been hearing a lot of reports about a loss of production in our food supply, particularly with livestock, with meat and so forth, that there's, we're on the verge of a shortage, prices are going up. And what we're seeing now, not only in our country but throughout the world, is kind of a small preview of coming attractions. If you're getting very antsy about this lockdown, this pandemic, and all of the restrictions, believe me, it's nothing compared to what's coming. We are getting a preview of coming attractions. And what's going to happen during the tribulation will make this time we're in now look like a picnic. And then Jesus says, these are the beginnings of sorrows, or in some translations, birth pains. Jesus likened the events leading up to the seven-year tribulation as a woman in labor, a woman about to give birth. Now, the actual birthing is the new world, the new age under the leadership of Jesus Christ. It's called the millennium. But the closer and closer we get to the end of the age of man and the beginning of the age of the Son of Man, as we know, when a woman's giving birth, the closer she gets to delivering the baby, the closer the birth pains get and the stronger they get and the more painful it is. And what happens is, just prior to that great moment of joy, when the baby is delivered and a new life comes into the world, that's the greatest time of pain. We're already in the labor pain stage, I believe. But the most painful part is yet to come. And for those of us who believe in the pre-tribulation rapture of the church, we will be in heaven during the most painful part. The birthing process is not easy. In fact, in earlier times, before we had all the wonderful modern medical procedures, techniques, and so forth that we have today, giving birth was a very risky business. Many women died in childbirth and many children died in childbirth. And so we're approaching a time on the earth where Jesus said it would be like no other time in the history of the world. Worse than any time in the history of the world. And right now we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg. Again, as we focus on this idea of speedily, not that it would happen in John's lifetime or in the succeeding centuries. It's been 2,000 years now, but John said, Jesus told John, when these things begin to happen, I mean, women are, are pregnant for nine months right before they give birth. It's a gradual process. The last 2,000 years have been that gestation period. But now, 
the woman is about to give birth. And after nine long months of pregnancy, when labor begins, the baby comes quickly. So that's what we're talking about. It's not going to be a long, drawn-out process. It's not going to be 100 years, 200 years, 1,000 years. It's going to come very quickly. Seven years to be exact. Will he really find faith on the earth? Now we move back to Revelation 1. 1. We're told that this message he sent and signified it by his angel. The angel is not named, but we know of a couple names that continue to pop up in the scriptures. Michael, Gabriel. Gabriel was the one who announced the birth of Christ. Luke 1.19, the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. So Gabriel announced the birth of John the Baptist, the birth of Jesus. Quite possibly, he has that special job, that special role as a messenger of very important events. We're not told. We are told it was signified by his angel to his servant John. John the beloved, the apostle, the one writing these things down. Who bore witness, verse 2, to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. So as we go through this book of Revelation, all the way up to the very end, this is a vision, one long continuous vision given to John the Apostle by Jesus. John 21, 24, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things and we know that his testimony is true. This is the uh, next to the last verse in John's Gospel. Let me read it again. This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So this was a very important calling, responsibility given to the Apostle John by Jesus to be a witness, to testify, to write these things down. We see that in the Gospel of John. We also see it in the epistles of John. 1 John 1, 1 through 3. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life with a big W, the Jesus is the word. John is saying, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him. We are eyewitnesses of the life and ministry of Christ here on earth. Verse 2. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us, that which we have seen and heard, we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. So how appropriate that Jesus would entrust the revelation to a man whose whole life was dedicated to being a witness, testifying before the whole world, about the risen Christ. So he is the one who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. Blessed, as you probably know, means happy. It can also mean secure. Secure is he who reads. By the way, this is the only book in the Bible that promises a blessing 
a special blessing upon those who, first of all, read it. But it doesn't stop there. Those who read it, those who hear the words. And so this tells us there's a difference between reading and hearing. Because in the scriptures, hearing is portrayed as perceiving, understanding. You can read something without really understanding it. So the blessing is for those who read it, hear it with their spiritual ears. It's not enough to just read it like a college Bible as literature course. They have those, or they used to anyway. I don't know if they still do. Probably not. Back when I was young, most colleges had a Bible as literature course. Now I think they're studying other things. But even then, you can study the Bible as literature, but that doesn't mean you're actually hearing it, perceiving it, understanding it. The blessing comes in hearing. Mark 4.23, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, we all have physical ears. Some have hearing loss. Most people have fairly sound hearing. So he's not talking about our physical ears If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Spiritual ears, ears that have been opened up by the Spirit of God. Romans 10, 17 in the King James Version. So then faith comes by hearing. Now, if that were true in the literal sense, simply by hearing with your physical ears, if faith comes by hearing, then everyone would have faith. So it's obviously not talking about physical hearing It's talking about hearing in your heart, your mind, your spirit, your soul. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So what's the promise here in the first chapter of Revelation? The blessing. Blessed is he who reads, those who hear the words, and we'll see in a moment, and keep those things or take them to heart. So as we read from the word of God and this book in particular, with a desire to understand and learn from God. The Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and we hear we hear what he is saying. I've spoken often about the direct connection between the heart and the mind. The Bible says as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Did you know you could think with your heart? There's a direct connection between the heart and the mind. And to come to Christ, you must transfer the knowledge and information that's been inputted into your mind. It has to be transferred from your head to your heart. But now we learn that not only has the heart has a mind of its own, if you will, it also has ears to hear. You must not just hear with your physical ears. You must hear with your heart. Obviously, I'm speaking metaphorically. The Holy Spirit speaks to our hearts and we hear what He is saying. Revelation 2.7 He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Remember, in the Garden of Eden, the tree of life was there. Adam and Eve were not forbidden from eating from that tree. 
until after they fell. They disobeyed God. They ate from the one tree that they were forbidden to eat from. And so they were banned from the garden so they would not be able to eat from the tree of life and live forever. The tree of life will be there in paradise when we arrive and we will eat from that tree for all eternity. Let him who has ears to hear. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes. The three enemies of the faith, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We must overcome. We must overcome the temptation to depart from the true faith. To be deceived by false teachers, false teachings, false doctrines, false belief systems. We must overcome the ever-encroaching apostasy that's coming upon this world. An overcomer is one who does exactly what John is telling us to do here. To read his word, to hear it with our spiritual ears, and finally here, to keep those things which are written in it, or to take it to heart. To take it seriously. It seems that many people today do not take God's Word seriously. They pick and choose the parts they like. They cast aside the parts they don't like. Anything that bothers them makes them uncomfortable. Anything they don't want to adhere to, they alter it, they modify it, they cast it aside. The blessing comes to those who read it, who hear it with their spiritual ears, and who keep those things which are written in it. Take it seriously, allowing the truth of God's Word to affect not only what we believe, but how we live. Matthew 7, 24. Jesus says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, that's what we have in the Holy Bible, the sayings of Christ, even in the Old Testament, because before Abraham was, Jesus said, I am. When the Spirit of God was inspiring the writers of the Old Testament, Jesus was right there with them. And obviously we have in the New Testament the words of Christ on full display. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. So again, not only to read them, but to hear them and to do them. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. The way that we build a firm foundation, not only for this life, but for eternity, a firm foundation for our faith, is to hear and to do the words of Christ. I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. Then he talks about the foolish man who builds his house on the sand. The sand would be the things of this world. The sand would be the philosophies of men. The sand would be anything that goes against and contradicts the truth of God's Word. Obviously, the house built on the sand will not stand. When the waves rage, when the rains come down, when the storms of this life come, that house will be blown away. We are to read the words, hear them, and do them. Keep them. 
Take them to heart. So the Word of God must pass through our intellect and penetrate our hearts and minds in order to affect change in our lives. In Romans chapter 12, it talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds. Apart from Christ, we're born into this world in sin. And our minds are twisted. They're not like the mind of Christ. And yet in Christ, we're told in the scriptures, we can have the, let this mind be in, in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. We have the mind of Christ. But we have to be transformed by the power of his word, the truth. Jesus said, you'll know the truth. The truth will make you free. Hebrews 4.12 for the Word of God is living and powerful. There's no other book like it. There's no other book that was written by the God of all creation. It's living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The thoughts of the heart. There it is again, the connection between the mind and the heart. A discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We can do a really good job of deceiving ourselves, fooling ourselves, convincing ourselves how great we are and how holy and pure we are. But as we get into the Word of God and we read the Word of God and we allow the Holy Spirit to give us insight and understanding, then the true intents and thoughts of our heart are made known to us, enabling us to confess our sins, repent, Stay in right relationship with God. In James, James talks about the fact that the Word of God is like a mirror. When we look into the Word, it reflects back to us who we really are. It also shows us who we can be and should be in Christ. But James says, be ye a doer of the Word and not a hearer only. Don't be like the man who looks in the mirror, sees what he looks like, and then goes away and forgets about it. The Word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I would encourage those of you watching today, many of you may be shut in, shut down right now. Maybe you're not working, not going to school. This gives you a perfect opportunity to spend more time in the Word of God. And by the way, that's what the my pillow guy, Mike Lindell, said. When he was up on the podium with the president, he suggested to the people of America, take this time to get in, spend time with your family and get into your Bible. And boy, did they slam him for that. Any of you guys see that? When Mike Lindell said that? If you've ever wondered, what in the world makes this guy so successful? All he did was invent a silly pillow. But his life is dedicated to the Lord Jesus Christ and God has blessed him tremendously. And he's not afraid to talk about it. So I would echo the words of Mike Lindell. Take time to be with your family and read your Bible. And it would be hard to imagine anybody watching that doesn't have a Bible, but if you don't have one, contact us and we will make sure you get one. Verse 4. Two verses to go for today. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia... Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. 
and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. The seven churches which are in Asia, also known as Asia Minor, but actually all seven of these churches were located in what is now modern-day Turkey, if you can believe that. Turkey, which is now an Islamic dictatorship, 2,000 years ago, seven of the early flourishing churches were in Turkey, Asia, Asia Minor. So the Father gave this revelation to Jesus, the Son, who then entrusted it to the Apostle John to be delivered to the body of Christ, specifically the church of Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and the church which I believe represents the time we're now living in, Laodicea, the lukewarm church. These seven churches were those which were closest to the Apostle John and were under his care, under his apostolic care and authority. And the number seven is significant. It occurs 54 times in this book, more frequently than any other number. And in the Bible, as you probably know, the number seven is associated with completion, fulfillment, and perfection. So this is the unveiling of how God will bring to completion His plan for the redemption of all creation and to establish His perfect kingdom forever and ever. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, from Him who is and who was and who is to come. I love it. Him who is, who was, and is to come. From the triune God who lives, has always lived, and is personally coming to this earth to bring peace, righteousness, and justice. The Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the great I Am. Grace and peace to you from Him, the Eternal One. Revelation 21.3, I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. Where is God now? He's on His throne in heaven. Where will he be in eternity? He will be with us, with men. And he will dwell with them and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Not only is Jesus coming again, God the Father will actually come and dwell among us in the new Jerusalem. How incredible is that? And so... This gives us some additional insight and understanding to the whole process we've been going through for the past 6,000 years. God created man and woman in perfection, placed them in the garden in a perfect environment. They disobeyed him. They fell into sin. Paradise was lost. And now for 6,000 years, man has been going through a purging process, a purifying process, God allowing us to learn, and we don't learn easily, do we? We tend to make the same mistakes over and over again. One definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different result. So there's a process God is bringing the human race through in order to prepare us to live with Him forever, we can only live in the presence of God when we are fully and completely perfected. 
The next phase is the tribulation. The outpouring of God's wrath on an unbelieving world. The purging of the earth of all that is not righteous and holy. And the establishment of Christ's millennial kingdom on the earth. And there'll be another purging at the end because the scriptures tell us that one-third of the human race alive on the earth at that time will rise up and rebel against God once again. There'll be another purging. And then we will all go into eternity with God dwelling in our very presence. There is a very precise method to God's plan, His purposes, His process. And we are right on the doorstep of seeing those things fulfilled. We read from the seven spirits who are before His throne. A lot of Bible scholars believe this refers to the Holy Spirit in His perfect fullness. The ancient Jews who envisioned the throne of God as the throne of an eastern monarch believed that there were seven ministering angels before His throne as there were seven ministers attendant on the throne of a Persian monarch. In a quote from the Apocrypha, the book of Tobit, chapter 12, verse 15 reads, I am Raphael, one of the seven holy angels which present the prayers of the saints and which go in and out before the glory of the Holy One. So it's quite possible that these seven spirits, one idea, they are the fullness of the Holy Spirit, or they are seven angelic beings before the throne of God presenting the prayers of the saints. Whatever it is, it's a marvelous vision. Verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. So here we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If the seven spirits represent the Holy Spirit in His perfection, then what we see here is the Trinity. From the Father, from Jesus Christ, and then the seven spirits before the throne. Jesus is referred to here as the faithful witness. Jesus came to earth as God's faithful witness. Faithful, you could say, to the point of death. He refused in any way, shape, or form to compromise his witness and his testimony. You remember at one point, as he's there in the wilderness, fasting for 40 days, 40 nights, preparing to launch his public ministry, the devil comes to tempt him at the end of that time. And the devil offers him all the kingdoms of the world, which Jesus will have, but the devil offered him a shortcut. Just bow down and worship me and you can have it all now. No suffering, no pain, no crucifixion. And Jesus totally denied that option. He's the faithful witness even unto death. John 3.11 Most assuredly I say to you, Jesus is speaking here, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. Jesus speaking is one-third of the Trinity. But you notice in the book of Genesis, let us make man in our image, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there at creation. Here in John chapter 3, Jesus says, you do not receive our witness. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
the firstborn from the dead. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. Well, you might say, well, I don't understand that because Jesus raised several people from the dead, including Lazarus. The prophet Elijah raised some people from the dead in the Old Testament. So how could Jesus be the firstborn from the dead? Because Jesus was the first ever to receive a resurrection body that is immortal. All those raised from the dead previously died again. It was a temporary resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is permanent for all eternity, and His resurrection is our promise that we too will one day be raised from the dead for all eternity. That's why He's the firstborn from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And there's another new term that we find in the New Testament that from the time of Christ's resurrection onward, believers who die are referred to as having fallen asleep. Because death for the believer is momentary. It's like falling asleep and waking up in the morning. You die, you fall asleep, you wake up in the presence of God. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because for the believer, death is temporary and life is eternal. The firstborn from the dead and ruler over the kings of the earth. Whether they know it or not, did you know? Even now. Again, God has given man a certain amount of latitude. He's got him on a rope, on a leash, and allows man a certain degree of freedom to make good choices, bad choices. But ultimately, God is in control. And Jesus is the Lord over the kings of the earth. The Bible tells us God raises up leaders. He takes down leaders and as we've discussed before, God has a tendency to give people, nations, the leaders they deserve. And so Jesus is Lord over all the kings of the earth. And at the second coming where we read about in Revelation 19, he comes back with the saints riding on white horses. And he conquers the kings of this earth who are fighting against him to prevent his return. In the book of Daniel, it talks about the rock, Jesus, who comes rolling in and destroying all the leaders and nations of this earth. Jesus is the Lord over all the kings of this earth. And so if you're looking for a leader, a master, someone to follow, and many people are, and they should be, the one you should be looking for is Jesus Christ. He is the faithful one. The ruler over the kings of the earth, whether they know it or not. Well, we've just barely scratched the surface in this introduction to the final book of the Bible. It's going to be a long, exciting, wild ride, I guarantee you. You won't want to miss it. I suspect this will be happening for the next couple of years at least, as we go through the book of Revelation together. Now we want to take a moment 
And remember the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the first Sunday of the month. This is the Sunday on which we take communion together. So hopefully all of you have gotten your elements prepared at home. If not, grab a crust of bread as quickly as possible, a little bit of juice or something similar. And we're going to honor the Lord. He told us, as often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We only have two New Testament ordinances as believers. Water baptism and communion. Whatever other ordinances you've learned in your church, in your denomination, I'm sorry to say this, but they're all man-made. The only two ordinances given by Jesus Christ are communion and baptism. He didn't tell us how often to do it. The important thing is that when we do it, we do it in sincerity and truth. Not as a ritual. Please understand, those of you watching today, this communion will not save you. It's only the symbol, the symbols of our salvation. The bread, the broken, battered, mutilated body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who did not have to suffer, but willingly suffered in our place. The bread is the symbol of that broken body, the cup, the symbol of his blood poured out for the sins of many. Why for the sins of many and not for all? Well, actually, his blood has been poured out for all. And there have been many that have accepted his completed work on the cross. But there's also been many who have rejected him. I hope and pray if you're watching today that you're among those who have accepted him, received him, acknowledged him as your Lord and Savior. And this communion is for believers. If you're watching and you're not a believer, I'm glad you're watching. But don't take communion with us unless you're willing to yield your life over to God and to His Son, Jesus Christ, to confess your sins before Him this morning and repent. Turn your life over to Him and make that determination and that decision to follow Christ for the rest of your earthly days. If you're ready to do that, then you're invited to join us as we partake together this morning. And so I want to pray before we pray over the bread and the cup, I want to pray a prayer for those who may want to receive Christ today. If you're really seeking God, you're desiring to know God, you realize there's an empty void in your life that nothing else has been able to fill, and you want to give God a chance, I would encourage you to pray along with me right now. You can just repeat these words after me. Heavenly Father, I confess to you now that I am a sinner. I have sinned in many ways. And I ask you now, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, to forgive me for my sins and to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me, for pouring out your blood in order to pay the price for my sins. Thank you, Jesus. I seek also your forgiveness, and I ask that you would give me the gift of faith and the gift of repentance, that I might be transformed now by the renewing of my mind. I want to be a new person, a brand new person created in your image. Please come into my life, live inside of me, and be my Savior I pray in Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that prayer today for the first time, we'd love to hear from you.
Or if you rededicated your life, you've been turning away from God, falling away, maybe for a short period of time, maybe for a long time. But you want to come back. Get a hold of us. Contact us. We'd love to pray with you, talk with you, welcome you into the family of God. And so now we're going to partake first of the bread, just like Jesus did with his disciples on the night of his betrayal at the Last Supper. He broke the bread. He gave it to them. He said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. We remember his sacrifice, his suffering, and we remember that he's coming again. Because he said he would not partake of this again until he did it anew in his father's house. We will be there with him at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so this is a reminder not only of what Christ has done, it's a reminder that he's coming again and we will live with him forever. Let's pray over the bread. Father, thank you for this bread which represents the broken body of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. He died that we might live. And we pray now that you'd help us to live for him each and every day until we see you face to face. Father, bless this bread as we partake together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Those few of us here in the sanctuary this morning, the crew, worship team, we have just partaken of unleavened bread. Bread without yeast representing the fact that Christ knew no sin. That's why he was able to die in our place. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Now we'll pray over the cup. Father, thank you for this cup, representing the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, whose blood was poured out on the cross of Calvary for the remission of sin, the cessation of the terminal illness known as sin. His blood is the only antidote, the only remedy. And we thank you, God, for providing that antidote, that remedy, that vaccine that destroys sin and enables us to live forever in paradise with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Father, thank you for the precious, precious blood of Christ. We ask you to bless this cup as we partake together now. In Jesus' name, amen.